Please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor, name, poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send me to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Daniel, and I'm preaching. I have the privilege to preach God wor- God's Word to you, and I'm going to pray for us uh, before we get in. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that amongst our voices and our cries and uh, fears and sadness and excitements and joys and boredom, that you speak into our lives. You speak to us this morning. We pray that our hearts would receive, that our minds would be enlightened, that we would be changed because you speak and change us because we're in your presence together. Would you remove me? Holy Spirit, speak to our spirits, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Tuesday evening, Rachel and I put our two boys down around 7.15 a.m. or 7.15 p.m. a.m. And I just slept the whole day, I'm just kidding, uh, 7.15 p.m., and I plopped in front of our TV for the next four hours to watch the results of the presidential election roll in. And throughout the night, everyone kept referring to the line, right, the line of 270 electoral votes that were needed to secure the win. I mainly watched CNN while checking various internet sources and updates, and, and as the votes rolled in, CNN would show the line of 270 And they had a bar graph where Trump was in relation to 270 and Clinton was in relation to 270. And there were predictions of how each would arrive to the line of 270 to win the election. And as I watched on Tuesday night, I thought about all the people who spent years striving for one of these candidates to reach that line. The amount of money spent so one of the candidates could reach the line of 270. I read article after article about people's hopes and dreams uh, about who would win or who would lose. We have been a country obsessed with who would win and who would lose this election. But an obsession with winning and losing 
is not just in election years. I, I want to propose this morning that we all are driven by an internal operating system deep within our hearts of winning and losing. That every person here this morning has a line. Call it the line of 270. That you use, that I use to measure ourselves against other people. To determine if we are winning or losing. And it's through this measurement that we can either feel good about ourselves or we can feel bad about ourselves. Let me explain it to you. Every person, every one of you has a list of good things that you would classify as good things by which we check off and measure. And our total versus another person's total lets us know if we are winning or losing. I'll give you some examples. Take the high school version of Daniel. My good things, grades, girls, sports, the amount of people that said hello to me in the hallway, class officer, the way I dressed. Right? So as an 11th grader, my internal operating system would be looking at myself and how I compared to John and Moray, my good friends. How are my grades and the girls that I'm dating, the sports that I'm playing, the popularity of my clothes, I would check they would get a check. I'd get a check. And if my total was higher than theirs and I reached the line of 270, I was winning. But when John won best all-around superlative our senior year, I felt like John's total went higher. And I was losing in comparison to John. Now, I'm 38 years old, and as grown-ups, we don't always use grades and girls, do we? Uh, we can still operate with this type of system, though. Our good things have just changed. Work, education, family, children, trips that we take, houses that we own, people that we know. And we can look around at other people and we measure ourselves in these areas. And if we feel that our total is higher, we're winning. But if we lose a job or a friendship goes awry or a child, a child rebels, all of a sudden we feel like we're losing. You see, our categories of measurement change, but our system for determining who is winning and losing remains. Therefore, we all are obsessed with winning and losing. I mean, take the Pharisees. That's who Jesus is telling this parable to. They operated with this system, but their categories, right, their, their list of good things were things like obeying the Ten Commandments, not touching or eating swine, right, pigs, and they would measure themselves against others. And, and if they measured higher, then they felt good. They were winning. Now, perhaps you're, you're here and you've been a Christian for some time, and you're like, Phew, I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee. I trust Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm not legalistic. I'm not even that judgmental. Not so fast. Your categories may just be, I'm not legalistic. I'm not judgmental. I serve the poor. I'm about racial reconciliation. And these help you determine your line of 270, and, or you could say you're Christian, I get it line. I get it more than others. And so you look around and you measure yourself if, if you're winning or you're losing. right? But when Joe over here share, uh, shares that he's sold his house and maybe he's moving into the hood or someone's started an effort for racial reconciliation that you had no hand in, all of a sudden, even within the body of Christ, you begin to measure yourself and you begin to feel like you might be losing. You following me? 
Let me share my current categories and operating system with you. My preaching, size of our church, the effectiveness of our church at evangelism, the effectiveness of our church at racial reconciliation, my marriage and my children, and this is the line of 270 or my humble, gifted pastor line, right? And I can look at my pastor friends and, and I can compare. How does our church grown in comparison to their church? And if we've grown more, I feel good about myself. But if I hear a friend tell me they've had X amount of people come to trust Jesus and they've baptized them and all of a sudden I begin to measure myself against them in, in that category and I feel like I'm losing. And what's even more disheartening and extremely sad is when we can rejoice as someone else's failure because it makes us feel better than. When someone else fails and there's a whisper deep inside of you, you won. Beginning in Luke chapter 15, Jesus starts telling parables. Beginning with the parable of the lost sheep, to the prodigal son, to the parable that we're looking at this morning. And there is a theme throughout the parables that Jesus is telling. He is declaring that he is bringing to bear a whole new way of thinking, a new system, if you will. An inbreaking of a whole new way of living, an upside down version of the way life has been lived. So I want us to look this morning at the system. Let's look at the system. In verses 19 to 21. So the first man that we see in this parable is the rich man. He's dressed in tailored shirts and handmade suits, lives in a gated community, eating his choice of lobster or steak, watching his portfolio of investments increase day by day. This is the man who has reached the pinnacle of achievement according to the world. His line of 270 is here and he is winning. He has surpassed others. Especially the second man, the poor man. He's homeless. And instead of wearing Brooks Brothers, he wears open sores that the dogs of the rich man lick repeatedly. And he lives outside the gate and is never seen by the rich man. He is the invisible man. This man is the pinnacle of worldly, defeat, of worldly defeat. On the line of 270, he's clearly losing. In spite of the rich man's wealth, and his worldly winning, it doesn't exempt him from death. Both he and the poor man die. And on the other side of death, the poor man is at Abraham's side or bosom. He's winning. And the rich man is in Hades or hell. He's now losing. There's this great reversal. Well, if you picked up on it though, even here the system of being a winner or loser is still at work in the rich man. Even in hell, look, in verse 24, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame and torment. The rich man in the world never had to take no for an answer. And even in hell, he is still functioning on winner's instinct, thinking that he can command his lackey, the poor man, to go fetch him a drink. And Abraham says, no one can cross between there and here. The chasm is too great. But he continues to operate like a winner and says, well, send Lazarus to my brothers. Maybe they will listen. See, even in hell, the rich man never accepts his death. Never accepts that he is ultimately lost. 
And Jesus is being very clear that salvation does not come through success and worldly winning. Rather, it comes in death and in losing. Yet we often strive for the life of the rich man. Not just material possessions, but a life of control. A life on our own terms. Life the way we want, how we want it, when we want it. You know when this internal operating system dominates and even drives our view of salvation? It's not good news for the world. You know, there have been attempt after attempt for the successful to try and bring Eden to bear on earth or to attempt to bring salvation to earth, and it fails every time. It's the salvation program that led to apartheid or to Jim Crow laws or the extermination of Jews by Hitler. I could go on and on of of ways this has happened. But listen to what Eugene Peterson writes. He says, Every society finds ways to shut its eyes, put fingers in ears, and by the extravagant use of deodorants and garbage trucks, get rid of the smell of of decay, uncleanness, stench, and squalor. We put our sick in hospitals, our elderly in nursing homes, our poor in slums, and our garbage in landfills. We do our best to keep it out of sight. The poor man in this parable who appears to be losing, is actually winning. You know, there's one thing that this poor man has that nobody else in all of Jesus' parables has. You know what it is? A name. No one else in all of Jesus' parables has a name, yet the poor man has a name. He is known by God, and his name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is the Greek Hellenized version of the name Eleazar, which means God is my help. Lazarus, the homeless, sore-infested, invisible man, appears to have nothing, appears to be losing, but he has God. God is all that he has, and in God he has everything. Years ago, I I picked up a book in the airport as I was traveling, a book titled Broken, a memoir by journalist Bill Moyers, whose son became addicted to drugs and was submitted to one of the premier rehabilitation clinics in the country, the Hazleton Clinic. And in this memoir, Moyers writes this. says, churches want to teach people how to be winners. The recovery movement tells you there are no winners allowed, only losers. Recovery is the company of the losers. The one credential that Jesus requires to ultimately win is to be a loser. That your name is Lazarus. That your sole proclamation is God is my help. He is all that I have. Here's my second point. Repentance is the call to leave this old system and enter into a new way of living. This parable, maybe if you've heard it preached before, has been used to talk about heaven and hell. I've preached it before to to talk about the sufficiency of God's Word, and I I believe the parable can address these two subjects, but but I don't think they are the, the main reason Jesus is telling this parable. The rich man is in hell and torment, and as as I've said, is still self-absorbed, thinks he's in charge, 
We never see the rich man asking to leave hell. He's actually getting what he's always wanted, life on his own terms. And he asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers. That in seeing someone rise from the dead, they may ultimately repent. And then we're left, right? And the Pharisees would have been left in a similar place that we were in the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the prodigal son, we don't know how the elder brother responds, right? We don't know how the five brothers in this parable respond. So the question looms as Jesus tells the parable, in spite of the rich man's lack of repentance, will the brothers repent? Will we repent? The main purpose of the parable is a call to repentance. To leave this old way of measuring ourselves as winning and losing and entering into a whole new way of living. Listen to what N.T. Wright writes in his commentary. He says, The parable is not as often supposed a description of the afterlife, warning people to be sure of their ultimate destination. Rather, what is happening to both rich and poor in the present time is that Jesus' welcome of the poor and outcast was a sign that the real return from exile, the new age, resurrection is coming into being, and if the new age is dawning, those who want to belong to it will have to repent. This parable is not about the afterlife but the life in the here and the now. Jesus, in his ministry, said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Change your way of thinking and functioning because the kingdom of God is here. Not just, as Timothy said earlier, not just when we die, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the way of the kingdom is the way of Lazarus. It is upside down of this world. Life and death winning by losing. Those who are last being first. Repentance is knowing your name, that your name is Lazarus. God is my help. He is all that I have. It's not relying and trusting on anything but Him. But sometimes repentance is hard to discern, to determine, are are we really repenting? Are we living in this new way of Jesus' upside-down kingdom? So let me give you a sign if you're in repentance. Not only do you know that your name is Lazarus, you love Lazarus. See, I guarantee you that the rich man never missed synagogue, knew his Torah, paid his tithe, but the rich man does not see Lazarus. He doesn't see Lazarus because he despises Lazarus. Lazarus is the loser. He's the winner. Every person here this morning, every person, has at least one Lazarus lying outside of your gate. At least one person who threatens your sense of control, your value of winning and losing. And every one of us attempts to not see, hear, smell, or touch Lazarus. It could be the homeless beggar that you see at the stoplight. The refugee who just moved to Durham the employee or the neighbor that just gets on your last nerve. You know, this Lazarus here in Luke 19 is a fictitious character in the parable, but there is another Lazarus in John chapter 11. And that Lazarus is actually very rich. So rich that his daughter dumps perfume on Jesus' feet worth one year of wages. So let me say this, you're Lazarus could be the rich person 
that you feel is next to you in the pew. Or the rich person that you see in downtown Durham. It could be the Republican or the Democrat that you think just doesn't get it. The person that you think is last and least. Deep down, despising. Loving this person is a sign of repentance and following the new way of Jesus. Here's my last point. For us to repent, we must be persuaded to repent. We have to be persuaded. The rich man asks Abraham to send a resurrected Lazarus to his five brothers and hope that they'll repent. In some way, the rich man is wanting Abraham to scare the hell out of his brothers, to scare them out of hell, amaze them out of hell with the resurrection of Lazarus. What Jesus says is that repentance will come through persuasion, through being wooed to see God's heart as one of love and grace for the last and the least. I have a a good friend from college whose name is Chris. Chris was a few years behind me at Auburn University, and and I was living in China doing ministry on a college campus, and Chris came over on a 10 day trip. Chris is from Nashville, Tennessee, prominent family was the president of one of the biggest fraternities and wildest fraternities at Auburn. And the campus minister at the time was talking to him about the gospel, explaining to him about Jesus, reading the Bible with him, discussing the scriptures with him. And, and Chris kept saying, I'm not sure I, I want to know Jesus. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I even like Jesus. But for some reason, Chris decided to come to China on a 10-day trip, a place that he knew nothing about. He had no Chinese friends. You could say that China was invisible to him at this point. And while in China, Chris got to meet a number of Chinese who had recently become Christians, who were risking uh, their very lives as they professed faith in Christ, uh, who were professing as new believers that they were lost because they had been persuaded by the love of God in Christ to trust and follow. So these Chinese were owning that they were Lazarus, that God must help them. God was all that they had. And as Chris interacted with them, God began to work in his heart to reveal to him the love and grace of Christ in a way that he had never known before. As Chris saw, heard, touched those who were invisible to him, he actually met the very heart of God and was persuaded to trust and follow Jesus. Became a Christian in that moment have a pastor friend who was in seminary, pastor who's in the area, was about to be hired while in seminary to plant a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. But his marriage was struggling. His heart was not in a good place, and so they encouraged him to not plant a church, that he needed to work on his own soul and on his marriage. So he moved to Atlanta, Georgia, got a job, got involved in a church, and went overseas for the first time to Uganda to work at an orphanage. And he will tell you that when he saw and touched, and felt, and heard these orphans, some who were disabled, his heart broke. And God's love came rushing in. And he understood the gospel of God's love in a way that he had never before. He's a different man today because of going to Uganda. And I could tell you story after story of people who finally understood the gospel because they interacted with those who they thought at once were invisible or who were invisible to them the last and the least. And they went and interacted, and they didn't leave thinking they were saviors and winners, but they left realizing they were losing. And the ones they went to were actually winning. So here's my point. The Lord will use 
whoever you think is Lazarus in your life to reveal and persuade you that his heart is one of love. To persuade you to repent and to rejoice that your name is Lazarus. Lazarus, God is my help. So who and how might God be asking you to see, touch, and smell and engage with your Lazarus? God will use it to persuade your heart towards repentance. Now Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And Abraham speaking of the scriptures, the revelation of God, the revelation of God's heart. And so not only do we see that our interactions with the last and least can persuade us, but the very word of God can persuade us to trust and know his heart. We don't just know God generally, but we know God specifically. We know the heart of God in Jesus through the Scriptures. Philippians 2, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Jesus left it all. He entered into Hades, the torment of the cross, all alone. Why? so that the great chasm that exists between us and the bosom of God could be closed. We must be persuaded. We must be wooed by the love of God in Jesus that comes in the Scriptures, and repentance will follow. And Nelson Mandela is one of the greatest leaders and agents of change and healing of all time. Mandela imprisoned for 28 years on Robben Island in South Africa during apartheid, And Mandela was finally released from prison and he would become the first black South African president. He spent his first year as president trying to bring healing and reconciliation between black and white South Africa. If you've seen the movie Invictus, then you've seen it portrayed in in cinema. But during the 1995 World Cup of Rugby, South Africa was playing the favored New Zealand. And you need to know this, that rugby was viewed as the sport of the oppressor by black South Africans. Their team, the Springboks, and their green jersey was emblematic of oppression. So much so that when the Springboks played home games, there was a small penned-in portion of the stadium for black South Africans, and they always cheered for the opposing team. So here was Mandela laboring hard to bring South Africa together and to live into the Springboks' motto, one team, one country. 97% of the crowd that day was white. And Mandela, knowing his position and his power, wanted all the leaders to be presented on the field before the game. And with pushback from many, he insisted that he walk out on that field wearing the green Springboks jersey. The jersey of the oppressor. Those who had imprisoned him for 28 years. And his act of wearing the green jersey won the heart of white South Africans. He wooed them by his humility, and by his love. And South Africa ultimately beat New Zealand that day, and the 97% white crowd started shouting, Mandela, Mandela. Jesus, our king, he put on more than a jersey. He took on flesh. And he was mocked, and he was crucified for the purpose of persuading your and my heart to his great love. That we might be overcome by Jesus so that we shout, Jesus, Jesus. 
Paul tells us in Romans 2, verse 4, that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. The kindness of God in the face of Jesus leads us to repentance. The way of the king and his kingdom is to trust Jesus and to win through losing, life through death, because Christ came to raise the dead. came to raise the dead. He didn't come to give a little help to self-sufficient people. He didn't come to reward the rewardable or to improve the improvable or correct the correctable. As one author said, He came simply to be the resurrection and the life of those who will take their stand on a death that He can use instead of a life He cannot use. Would you hear His Word? See His heart in the face of Jesus and be persuaded to repent and follow this new way of being a loser who serves and loves other losers. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us and destroy this internal system of self-righteousness, of self-salvation, of judgmentalness, of whether we're not a Christian or we're a Christian, pastor or congregant, Lord, we all can fall into operating in this thinking. So we need you, Jesus, to woo our hearts, to change us. We need to know we're Lazarus. And in that, may we love others who are needy. May we see, may we touch, may we smell, and may we love with the love we receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This table is a place that we come every week to taste the bread and smell the wine and to see others come together in community. It really is a place that we trust and believe and hope that God would persuade us in in our senses, not just in our minds, but as we touch, touch, smell, taste together, that we would be wooed to the love of Christ. Body broken, blood shed for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you would say, I don't trust Jesus, not sure I'm a Christian. We're glad you're here. We do pray, ultimately, that you would be so wooed and persuaded by the extravagant love and grace of Jesus, that you would experience that in us, in our community, but you would experience in our worship every Sunday. If that's you, you don't need to pretend. You can remain in your pew and think about what's been happening this morning, or you can come forward and make this motion, and we'd love to say a prayer of blessing for you. But if you trust Jesus, though it may be weak at times and you may stumble and struggle at times and you may have no hope at times, we need to come and be renewed yet again in His love towards us as we taste and we smell and we touch. Uh, The ushers are going to let you out row by row. You'll partake up front. So upstairs and down below, ushers will let you out row by row. There's uh, bread, gluten-free bread, red wine, white grape juice. If you have children, you're welcome to go get them and bring them forward. And we'd love to say a prayer of blessing for your children uh, as they come together. Uh, So let me pray and those serving come forward. Let's pray. God, I um, thank you, God, that you've not left us alone uh, to figure out life, but we've sung and we've prayed and we've looked at your word and now we want to taste your word. We want to be wooed and persuaded. 
Because often in our minds and in our thoughts, we are set uh, and we have this system that's not, not what you have called us to. And so we need to be wooed to repentance this morning. To see that we are the last and the least. To see that we are Lazarus and that we actually win by boasting and that we have nothing but Christ alone. And so may we come together as a body, as a community, in this feeding line of beggars needing your grace. Would you feed us and meet us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took his body and he broke it. So this is my body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. In the same manner he took the cup, he said,